Father in heaven, Lord, we pause to thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to worship in this place tonight. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here in our midst. May you speak through your word and illuminate our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation. In fact, no, before you go to Revelation, please go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, just before Revelation, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. It's a familiar text to many of us, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, the Bible says, We have also a more what? A more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the day star arise in your heart. This is a kind of a fundamental foundational text for Adventist Bible students when we're looking at Bible prophecy. It assures us that we have a sure word of prophecy. Now in Revelation, turn over a few pages to the book of Revelation. Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3. They are the two chapters that deal with the seven churches. Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Now in Revelation, the seven churches of Revelation, there are seven churches there, which were seven literal cities in John's day. The, uh, on the screen there, you can see number one through to number seven. It's almost like an upside-down horseshoe shape of the seven churches. And Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and so on, they go in that order. Now John wrote the book of Revelation, as chapter one points out, and he wrote the book of Revelation as a letter to the seven churches. Now, when, you read, when we read the book of Revelation today, there's a couple of ways that we can read it. Number one, we can read the book of Revelation as a literal book, obviously, that was written in that first century to the people that he was writing the book of Revelation to, those seven churches. The second way we can read Revelation, and the way most often as Adventists we read it, is the symbolic representation of the churches through time where we look at the first century representing kind of Ephesus and so on, we look at the characteristics of the churches and we see the experience of God's church through different pockets of history and we've kind of matched the two together. The third way that we can read the book of Revelation, which is important for us to do as well, is personally applying the personal spiritual lessons of one particular church to our experience and our experience with Christ may change from day to day, and the admonition he gives from church to church over time. Now, when you look at the, each of the messages, they're structured a certain way. We're not going to go to this in detail. I'm just kind of doing this as a, as, a, as a background framework. There's always an introduction. There's always a promise, affirmation, rebuke, counsel, and warning. However, not every church gets every aspect of those messages. Some of the churches get some. Some of them don't. Most of them get all of these six things to them. So, when we look at a timeline, the church of Ephesus starts around about the year 31 AD. And then it goes to, roughly, most Bible scholars will put it to the year 100 AD, the apostolic time period of the first century. And the characteristics of the church in Ephesus are these. Verse 2 of chapter 2 in Revelation, it says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. A characteristic of the first century church was that they were strong in doctrine. They knew what they believed. They were kind of a pure church. 
They tested the apostles. They were concerned about the purity of doctrine. This church, the Ephesus church, was a pretty good church. Verse 3, it says, You have borne and have patience, and for my namesake have labored, have not fainted. They were busy doing things for the sake of Christ. They were doctrinally pure. They were working hard. Good church. But then you come to verse 4, and verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you, because you've left your what? First love. This is summing up Ephesus. Doctrinally pure, hardworking, but they have forgotten, in a sense, the reason why they're doing what they are doing. When you read the book of Ephesians, you can find many parallels between Ephesians and the message to Ephesus. So, Smyrna comes after that, and Smyrna is roughly the year 30, sorry, 100 to around about 331 AD. Now, you've heard the, the um, so Satan sees the early church, they're doctrinally pure, they're hardworking, they're doing well, so he wants to attack them. His first mode of attack was to attack them front on, head on, to try and destroy the church. The church in Smyrna doesn't receive any rebuke. No rebuke to the Smyrna church, and they're persecuted. They're faithful. There's no rebuke, and they're promised the crown of life. It's during the time period of Smyrna that the church goes through some of its hardest times in the 100s, in the 200s, pagan Rome persecuting the Christians. It wasn't an easy time to be a Christian. The religion was outlawed. It wasn't a popular time to be a Christian. The Colosseums and different places in Europe, they stand as monuments of the persecution of the Christian during these time periods of history. Then you have Pergamos. Pergamos now signifies a switch. Ephesus, pure. Pergamos, persecuted. No. Smyrna, thank you, persecuted. Pergamos, though, it now switches. You've heard the phrase, if you can't beat them, then you what? Then you join them. Satan can't beat the church. He can't persecute it out of existence. You know, there's quotations in, in Great Controversy where they're quoted from other places where it says, the blood of Christians was seed to the gospel. The more often we are mown down, the more we spring up. So he tried to kill the Christian church, but killing the Christian church didn't work. So he says, okay, I can't kill the Christian church off. Instead, I will join them. And you see the same strategy today in broader principles. So Pergamos, what happens in Pergamos, 31 AD? What happens? A key figure at the beginning of this time period was a man by the name of Constantine. If you've never studied him or haven't heard about him, he was a key figure that did a lot of damage in the name of Christianity. He becomes a Christian in name. In name. He blends the pagan and the Christian sides of his empire together. These guys are the Christians. These guys are the pagans. He tells the Christians he's now a Christian. He tells the pagan, hey, I'm now a Christian, but let's keep doing basically what we've always been doing, and we'll just change the name for what we're doing. Very simplistic way of looking at history, but that kind of understands what happened. That's where many practices kept into, crept into Christianity that had no place in Christianity. That's how kind of St. Peter, St. Jupiter... Easter, Ishtar, all these types of things start creeping into Christianity that had no basis in Christianity, and Christianity starts to get watered down. Rome shifts from being pagan to Christian. Constantine believed he saw a, a cross in the sky, and by this sign you shall conquer. This is also this time period when Saturday becomes Sunday. 
So this was the time period of, of, of strong compromise in the Christian church. Strong compromise. Um, the beginning of the union of church and state. Then, after Pergamos, we have Thyatira. If Pergamos represented compromise, Thyatira represents full-blown corruption. The church is now is kind of <laughs> pure, persecuted, compromised, corrupt. Thyatira, 538, this is the church, when you look at it, of the 1260-year time period, 538 to 1798 during this time period. Thyatira was not a, a great time. Compromise is fully corrupt. It's the apostate church. It's the time of the Roman church reigning supreme, and it's the full union of church and state. We then move on to Sardis. Sardis is here, Philadelphia, and then our favorite city, Laodicea. Actually, let's just go back. This is today modern-day Turkey. You see the island there, Lesbos? That's the island that's actually Greek island. It's where all the migrants are going to, because the minute they get from here to here, they're in Europe. And so it just kind of give you a bit of current-day con context on, on Pergam. Patmos is down here, so it gives you a little bit of context as to modern-day news and biblical prophecy. Now... Sardis was 1798, most people put it from 1798 to 1833. Sardis, don't spend long on it, kind of is a dead church. Then in 1833, we'll pick up Philadelphia. Philadelphia, though, things shift. And we, if you've studied your Adventist history, you'll know why it starts to shift. It starts to shift because you have the great kind of, you know, awakening, looking for the return of Jesus, William Miller and other people here in the United States, other people in different parts of the world looking for Jesus' return. This was a time period of great revival in Christianity. Now, it's interesting, Smyrna got no rebuke, Philadelphia also gets no rebuke, two, two churches with no rebuke. It was a great time, uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love, you know, William Miller, if you go to his home on the East Coast... Um, He's a man that was looking for Jesus. Well, he wasn't. He was a deist. He started to study his Bible. He saw that Jesus was coming back, and he, he didn't do anything with that knowledge for about 18 years until finally he started to preach the, uh, the return of Jesus, and the Advent movement was born as people started to look for Jesus' return. This church doesn't get any rebuke. It's a time when people sold their houses waiting for Jesus to return. Farmers left their crops in the field waiting for Jesus to return. This was a, a time of great revival in the Christian church, and then... 1844, we have Laodicea, our time period. Now, that's a brief, very short overview of the seven churches. But within those seven churches, we have some promises or some highlights. Even in the most corrupt churches, there are some highlights that we can pull out for us today. Because in, even in the midst of the corrupt Thyatira church, God would give his people some promises. In Revelation chapter 2, turn there if you're there, Revelation chapter 2, and, and toward the end of the chapter, towards the end of the chapter, we have there, verse 26, verse 26, Revelation chapter 2, it says, and he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the what? Nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And verse 28 says, and I will give him the what? The morning star. So in this time period of 
in a sense, all broad-reaching corruption to the Christ, of the Christian church, God says a promise in the midst of that is there's going to be this thing called the morning star. The morning star. You know, when we think of the Reformation, most of the uh, emphasis today goes on Martin Luther. Martin Luther did a great work in Germany. But before Martin Luther, there were certain people that paved the way for him to be able to, in a sense, pick up the steam that he did. Revelation chapter 2 verse 28 gives us a key one. It says, I will give him the morning star. The book of Great Controversy in the page 80, it says this. In the 14th century, 1300s, arose in England the what? The morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe was the herald of reform, not just for England alone, but for all of what? Christendom. The great protest against Rome, which it was permitted him to utter, was never to be what? See, there's something special in some ways about the first. Because the first person or the, the first event, they paved the way for everything that comes after. John Wycliffe, in many ways, was the greatest reformer he was the morning star of the Reformation. He was the first one in an era of darkness who, while he was still a Roman Catholic himself, stood up speaking reform against the very church that he was in. John Wycliffe was way ahead of his time. Theologically, philosophically, he was way ahead of his time. Like, the Reformation never actually really ever caught up with John Wycliffe until America formed as a nation. Like his views on church and state never got implemented in Europe because every time there was a reform, it became a church, a church institution, I'm sorry, a state institution, even though it was a reformed religion. And it wasn't until the birth of America that John Wycliffe's ideas actually started to come to pass. He was that far ahead of his actual time, like three, four hundred years ahead. John Wycliffe as the morning star of the Reformation. Ellen White, she writes, nope. Ellen White writes, I'll come to her writing in a minute. Now, John Wycliffe, the context of his birth, why was he so great? The context of his birth, at the time, England was going through a, a tough time. At the time of John Wycliffe's birth, England was paying, I'm not sure what the, the modern day currency was, he, England was paying 1,000 crowns per year to the papacy. And it was agreement they had entered into back 150 years previous when King John, if you know your English history, King John was the king who was forced to sign Magna Carta. When King John was around and you had the weakest of English kings, you had the strongest Pope, Pope Innocent something, and these two together, he made England pay a thousand crowns to the Pope. That's what kind of got England into Magna Carta. So even after that, England was paying some of these thousand crowns a year to the Pope. Now, when John Wycliffe came along, the first thing he protested against was this in invasion into the national rights of England. Why should we, as a sovereign country, be paying money to this state all the way over there in Italy? And so he protested against this kind of invasion into the national rights of England. And for that, he kind of got the Ro Rome's back up. Later on, he would translate the Bible, and obviously that got their backs up too. But the first thing was, was kind of this issue of national rights. He studied at Oxford. He was a very highly respected professor. And towards the end of his life, he was sent to the parish of Lutterworth. 
Small little town just south of Leicester, about two hours north of London. Today you can go, if you ever go to England, you drive up the M1, it's the motorway, drive up there, you get off at Junction 20, and there you've got a tiny little town of about 2,000 people, and his church sits on the hill overlooking the town, and you go visit his church, it's open every, every day today from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. Welcome to Lutterworth, the workplace of John Wycliffe and also Sir Frank Whittle, who invented the jet engine. Though I believe John Wycliffe is far more important than the jet engine. Amen. <laughs> now, what else about John Wycliffe? There's his church there. You can kind of, not the best picture. Um, not exactly what it would have looked like back then. These, these wings weren't there. But it's basically his church, and you can go there today. They have some original artifacts in the church if you like to kind of worship some, some holy relics. Um, they've got his preaching robe that's in, 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 in <laughs> encased in a, a glass cage. They believe it's his preaching robe. They've got a chair that they believe was John Wycliffe's chair that you can sit on and take a picture if you so, so desire. And they also have the pulpit that kind of dates back to his time. You know, it's kind of surreal to think there's a pulpit that's like older than the country of America. But there it is, it stands there. And these kind of things are there kind of as reminders of, of the work that he did in years gone by. John Wycliffe had three papal bulls that were issued against him, but somehow he managed to dodge them each time. He would either be protected by, by powerful barons or there was the schism of the popes at the time between this pope and this pope, both claiming to be the right pope. So because of the schism, he was never actually, they never actually kind of really clamped down on him um, after the, de the death of Gregory. One time they came to him and they were asking him to recant. They were asking him to change his views. And, and he said words that are profound, that kind of echo down to our time today. He said, with whom do you think you are contending with? Are you contending with an old man on the brink of a grave? And you could kind of rephrase that any, any way today as well. If we stand with Christ and we stand with his word, the Bible says you can do nothing against the truth but what? For it. With whom do you think you are contending with? With me as an individual? With whom are you contending with? With a small little church here? With whom are you contending with? With our group of believers over there? With whom are you contending with? He says, no, you're not contending with an old man on the brink of the grave. You're contending with truth. Truth that is stronger than you and truth that will overcome you. Profound words that he uttered, not inspired words, so to speak, but the principle is inspired. That God stands on the side of truth. He stands on his children when we stand with him on the side of truth. And he defends us. And when we're about our ministry here on earth, when we're about doing what we're doing, that we need to make sure that we are dedicated to Christ. Ellen White, she writes, like after reformers, Wycliffe did not at the opening of his work foresee where it would lead him. He did not set himself deliberately in opposition to Rome, but devotion to truth could not but bring him in conflict with falsehood. The more clearly he discerned the errors of the papacy, the more earnestly he presented the teachings of the Bible. You see, there's a common train with all these reformers. None of them set out to be reformers. They set out to be faithful. None of them woke up and said, I want to take on the church. 
I want to do this great work. No, they set out to be faithful, and when they did that, God kind of just moved from there. Sometimes we want to do that before we're willing to be faithful. He never saw where it was going to take him. He did not deliberately want to be a rebel. He did not want to change for change's sake. But when he set himself on this course, it would only take him that way. His most important achievement, however, was the translation of the Bible. Now, we really take this for granted today. We really take this for granted. I run a summer camp, and every year at the end of the summer camp, you know, there's just Bibles stacked up from kids who have come to summer camps, whose parents have most of the time sent them there, paid for them. They bring, they pack, take your Bible to summer camp. You've got to take your Bible. You go to an Adventist camp. And the amount of Bibles we get left over. And it's kind of sad. I open the Bibles at the end of the summer camp, look through them. Dear, name of the child, love from mom, please read your Bible, blah, blah, blah. Just left there. His most important achievement was a translation of the Bible. At the time, people did not have the Bible. In the 13th century, why? We forbid the laity to possess any of the books of the Old Testament and New Testament except the Psalter. Do you know what that is? It's the Psalms to music, kind of songs. They can have that, but they can't have anything else. But having any of the books translated into the what? Into the vulgar tongue. What you and I speak right now, the vulgar tongue, we strictly forbid. You know, after he translated, notice what the people said, Bishop Arundel, Archbishop. This pestilential and most wretched John Wycliffe of damnable memory, a child of the old devil, and himself a child or pupil of Antichrist, crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue. Like that's how it was viewed by the contemporary scholars of the day. We as Adventists look back and say, this was amazing. The contemporary scholars of the day, I mean, do you know how long it takes you to translate a Bible from Latin to English? And at the end of this work, hey, hey, professor, look what I've done. Child of the devil. Like your greatest works on this earth don't always receive immediate applause. The greatest things that you can do don't always receive the applause of your contemporaries that you are living with right now. That's what they said about Wycliffe, his Bible. That's the, kind of the, the, the report it got in the news of his day. However... History remembers him differently. The translation marked an epoch in the development of the English language, as Luther's did in the history of German. You see, up until Wycliffe, was there really a solidified, settled English language? Debatable. Yeah, there was. But there was also the French that was spoken as well. There was kind of a bit of a mix. But once he translated this Bible as a masterpiece of the language, it kind of settled the language in the country. Chaucer has been recognized as the father of English poetry, but many recognize that Wycliffe should be recognized as the father of English prose. That comes from the book John Wycliffe, The Dawn of the Reformation, page 48. When Ellen White wrote, when John the Revelator, don't know if he knew exactly who he was writing about, wrote, I will give him the morning star. When Ellen White wrote that John Wycliffe was the morning star, the work that he did as a sole individual paved the way for those who came after 
that we remember maybe slightly better. It was at the Council of Constance about 30 years after his death that was called to settle the papal schism. The Council of Constance was there because you had not one, not two, but three popes. Can you imagine the, the, the confusion in Adventism today if we had three general conference presidents? All claiming to be the rightly elected general conference president? It would be confusion. There was three popes. And I'm not saying the general conference president the pope. No, not saying that. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying, though. There was three. So some were with this, some were with this, some were with this. People with one. So they called this Council of Constance to settle the schism. Um, as they called the Council of Constance, they also decided they were going to kill Huss and Jerome. And that's a whole longer story, how they got killed. Where John Huss and Jerome both got killed at the Council of Constance. You can go there, it was in this building here, the Munster, uh, where they condemned him. But it was also at the Council of Constance where they condemned Wycliffe as a heretic and ordered that his bones be dug up and burned. Like, it's not enough that he's, he's actually dead already. Well, we couldn't burn him during his life, so let's dig him up, open the coffin, get the bones out, make a fire, and burn his bones. So they did. Not straight away, because when the order came from the Council of Constance to the Bishop of Lincoln, he said, there's no way I'm digging him up. He was a friend of mine. No. And he was bishop for eight more years. So for eight years, nothing happened. Then the next bishop that came along didn't have as much backbone, and he got leaned on by whoever was above him, and eventually he ordered that the bones be dug up and burned. They dug them up. We don't know exactly where they burned them or where they were thrown, but we know they were thrown into this river. Today you can go there. It flows right by Lutterworth. And some of you may have read in the book Great Controversy that kind of paragraph that summarizes the impact of Wycliffe in relation to the, the river that his, um, his ashes were thrown in. This book, says an old writer, has conveyed his ashes into the seven. The Avon, sorry. The Avon into the seven. The seven into the narrow seas. And they into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed to what? The world over. You see, once he started to peel back the darkness, it could not stop. The protest had begun, and even though in John Wycliffe's day there was no such thing as quote-unquote a Protestant, even though that term wasn't to be coined for about another 200 years, in many ways he was the first Protestant protesting on his own against the church of his day. And that great Protestant principle, he kind of was one of the first in print to write. With whom are you contending with? An old man on the brink of the grave? No. You're contending with truth. That principle that we're true to what's right and that we're true to our conscience above anything else. And that's a general principle you see all through the Reformation and all through the birth of the Adventist church. Huss and Jerome would come after him. They kind of received Wycliffe's writings, one of them, brought them back to the Czech Republic. Back then it was called Bohemia. And they were killed, as I mentioned earlier, at the Council of Constance. Today, you know, it's, it's kind of nice. You go to Prague, they, they, they do remember their reform as well there in Prague. There's a whole square and there's a statue there of John Huss. He went to the Council of Constance under the safe conduct of the um, Emperor Sigismund. He said, come, I'll give you a safe conduct. Here's the letter. And in many ways, some historians believe that it was this 
situation that saved Luther about 100 years later. Because he went there under a safe conduct, but as soon as he arrived, he was put into prison. So he gets the letter, gets there to um, Constance, gets thrown straight into prison. Jerome, who was his kind of sidekick, said, if you get in trouble, I'll come help you. So Jerome leaves Prague and goes straight to Constance. When he got there, though, he realized that Huss is in prison. There's nothing he can really do to get him out of prison. Realizing him being there was futile, his own life would be in danger. Jerome starts making his way back to Prague. But by then, the Roman armies are kind of caught on. They send people after Jerome, captured him, and brought him back as well. They were tried in this church here. Huss first. He was burned, I believe, one year before Jerome. And before Huss was burned, he stood up and he said, I came here under the safe conduct of this emperor. Everyone in the room turned and looked at that emperor. The emperor's face, history says, went crimson red. This would probably save Luther about a hundred and so years later. For the emperor, I forget his name, in Luther's time, when he came to the Diet of Worms, they said, listen, just lock him up and kill him. And the emperor said, I do not want to blush like Sigismund blushed. So in some ways, personal pride kept Luther alive. Not his, but someone else's. He was taken to this spot and burned here. And they also dug his ashes up and the dirt under them and threw them into the river Rhine. Jerome was burned on the same spot uh, a few months later. He recanted and then recanted his recantation. You know, in history, there's a couple of guys like that. There's a couple of guys like that. Jerome was one. Thomas Cramner was one. Guys that recanted and said, okay, I'll be a faithful Catholic. And then their conscience couldn't leave them free. And then when they came back, it's powerful. They say, I will recant my previous recantation. Take me to the flames. He was one, Jerome. And it's a powerful story that, you know, even when people faltered and kind of broke under pressure, It's how they finish their life that really matters. How they finish that really matters. Then we have Martin Luther, who we we know so much about in this year, the 500th year of the Reformation, the 500th year that he nailed his 95 Theses to the cross. Not the cross, the door. (laughs) Martin Luther was born in 1494. His dad was a minor, relatively poor family. If you look at his house today, it doesn't look poor by today's status, but you can't always judge the history by contemporary uh, views. Um, He was born in this house here. Uh, It's his birth house. That's the church behind that he would have been christened or baptized in the day he would have been baptized there. That's his, uh, so this is his house. Um, You can go inside and they've kind of got some original things there. That's not his original bed, but they, they kind of say it's what a bed might have looked like. And this is the church where he would have been baptized or christened. Uh, modern inside, but it's still the same old building that would have been there in his day. When you follow Luther around Germany, you kind of start at his birth house, and then you kind of go west, it would be. And you go to the town of Erfurt, and that's where he went to study to be a monk. And there you can see his room where he studied to be a monk. But it's this room that I find quite interesting. We don't know where it was in the room, but it was somewhere in this room where Luther was in the, in the church next to his monastery where he found a Bible chained to the wall. 
And as he found a Bible chained to the wall, it's fascinating. He writes and he says, I had heard about the Bible, but I'd never seen one. You're going to study to be a monk, and you've heard that there's some kind of thing called a Bible, but you've never actually seen one. Now, we, would, we can't get that through our heads. He finds a Bible chain, literally chained to the wall and starts to read it in the Latin. And as he starts to read it, his mind starts to get opened. One thing leads to another, a reason over bits of history, one thing leads to another. He graduates from school, he moves to Wittenberg. There was a dispute in his area between some of the, the local churches. He was sent to Rome to find out what would be the higher authority settling of the dispute. And this picture is not historically accurate to Luther's day because that building may not have been built then. However, we recognize it as Rome. He makes his way to Rome, and that's the holy grail for him. It's kind of like Adventists going to the general conference session, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's like coming to Loma. No. <laughs> I don't know. He went to this place that was just like always dreamed of going there. For many Christians today, they go to the Holy Land, they go to Israel, and they get there, it's just like, wow, I'm, there's Jerusalem, and you know, wow. He gets here, and as he got in sight of Rome, he says he lay prostrate on the ground and said, oh, holy Rome, I salute you. He thought this was going to be the most spiritual experience of his whole life, but as he got there, and he heard the profane talk as he saw the terrible things taking place. He realized that his hopes were not all they should have been. However, he still did his things. He did what he had to do. And then he went to this place here. This place here is where he went. It's called Pilate's Staircase. The belief is that this was the staircase that Pilate ascended or Jesus ascended on the night before or the nights before he was crucified. That he walked up this staircase. This staircase was in the city of Jerusalem. And then miraculously, one night, the angel Gabriel picked up the staircase from Jerusalem and transported it to Rome. That's why it's called Pilate's Staircase. That's the belief. And today, myriads of pilgrims will travel there from all over the world still. I mean, you can see that picture. It's taken in the summertime. There's like a traffic jam to get onto the, onto, onto the stairs. And as they get on the stairs, they kneel on one step, and on every step they say a prayer. And it's not no popcorn sentence prayers. These are like substantial prayers that are on that staircase for a good 30, 45 minutes till they get to the top. Luther was no different. He had traveled from Germany by foot, gets to Rome. And he's making his way up this staircase on his knees when somewhere, it's probably, you know, we, we were there trying to find the place you know, years ago when I, when I went the first time. And we're trying to find actually where the place was. It's right next to a key uh, a Catholic church called St. John's Church. So we're asking like one of actually, the, there was only, the only people to ask were all Catholics. Like, where's the staircase where Martin Luther prayed? And he directed us to it, and he actually, he actually honestly said, he said, that's probably one of the most authentic places here in Rome, because we know on that staircase that key historical event actually did happen. <laughs> and most of the stories you hear actually in Rome from tour guides, you're like, eh. Somewhere here, Martin Luther was. When he heard the words in his mind of Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. 
gets up from his knees and makes his way back in it was another significant turning point in his life. Makes his way back to the city of Wittenberg. You see, Luther was living by a higher principle than other people of his day. He was living by the principle of obedience to scripture and conscience. He makes his way back here to the city. This is a picture of Wittenberg taken in winter. It was when we were filming Lineage earlier this year. We, if we had planned it properly, we would have gone in the summer. But uh, we didn't plan it properly. We went in the winter. It was freezing cold. Um, but, you know, I guess the snow adds a little dynamic. And uh, it was this building here, the Wittenberg Castle Church, and that door that was right there where he, um, he would have nailed his 95 theses. This was the church, actually, one you see there that he would have preached in more often. That's like where he gave his sermons, the just live by faith, but this one kind of seems to get more credit today because he you know, nailed his 95 theses to it. Um, the issue was the issue of indulgences. Now, what were these indulgences? See, indulgences were linked to justification by the sacraments, the sacrament of penance. You see, in order to be justified in the Roman Catholic belief, you had, um, there's two parts. You have penance was with the second plank of justification for those who have made a shipwreck of their soul. I should say soul. Penance had three parts, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. And indulgences were with the third part, which was satisfaction. So you've, you know, you've been contrite, you've confessed, but now you've got to do the third thing, which is satisfaction. And indulgence was primarily um, focused on that. You see, the economic problems of the day, this gives us some of the context, the economic problems of the Germans and of the, of the Pope of the day meant they were selling these indulgences for an exorbitant amount of money and making money off them. Notice it, it was finally decided that when the indulgences should be promulgated on behalf of St. Peter's, Rome, sorry, half the proceeds should by private agreement go to these families at the time. There was some background politics of the day. This um, tells us that Wittenberg was a significant place. Notice there, Saxony had collected almost 18,000 relics, ranging from a twig from Moses' burning bush to a tear that Jesus shed when he wept over Jerusalem. Money from this traffic in relics provided the endowment, you know. For the University of Wittenberg, pilgrims came from miles around for by making the proper prayers and offering one could earn indulgences that would cancel out almost two million years in purgatory. So the university was living on the money, you could say, that was coming in from these indulgences. So everyone's kind of got, you know, everyone's interested in making sure this goes on. So you can see when Luther stands up as a professor of said university, speaking against what's bringing in money to the endowment fund of the university, it's not just about being true to principle, there's other dynamics around. Tetzel was the one selling the indulgences, and here's a quote from him. He would preach. Imagine hearing this in your sermon. You should know whoever has confessed and is contrite and puts arms into the box as his confessor counsels him will have all of his sins forgiven. So why are you standing idly by? Run, all of you, for the salvation of your souls. Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other relatives screaming and saying, have pity on me, have pity on me. We are suffering severe punishment and pain from which you could rescue us. That's the sermon on Sunday morning. Go get your money because your parents are screaming and they need you to release them. This was the superstition that the people were living under. That's the famous quote that he said, as soon as the coin 
into the uh, copper rings, the soul from purgatory springs. As soon as that money clinks against the bottom, your parent, your grandparent, your auntie, they spring from purgatory and go to heaven. Luther was speaking and standing up against this. So he started, you know, the, the controversy. He started when people would come in and bring their scripts of um, their, their, their um, indulgences to him. He wasn't accepting them. So it started to create a problem. And there's one interesting uh, story of history that someone actually went and bought their indulgence from Tetzel because the, the indulgences were for sins past, present, and future. And there's one story of someone who bought an indulgence from Tetzel. And then on Tetzel's way home, he robbed Tetzel. Dad says, you can't rob me. He says, yes, I can. You told me I could. <laughs> Came back to bite him. You know, the person was quite clever, you would say. Now, so this was kind of the situation at the time. And it was on these doors that Martin Luther then nailed his 95 theses in, on October the 31st, 1517. Martin Luther never intended that what he did on that day would become, in a sense, what it became. You know... And the reason why we know he never intended it to become what it became is because he wrote it in Latin. If he wanted it to become what it became, he would have written it in German. But he wrote it in Latin. His original intention was it would just be a discussion amongst the university professors in Wittenberg. But someone take, took it, translated it, and because the Gutenberg press had been, had been invented you know, several decades before, translation into German, Gutenberg press, put those two together, it spreads all over Germany, and what was initially probably just going to be a storm in a teacup becomes a tornado that threatens the whole church. God had his way. God was like, no, no, this is not just going to be a little thing in Wittenberg. This thing is going to be the catalyst that's going to kind of change and, and, and be a turning point for Christianity. You know, Luther himself said, the publicity did not appeal to me. It's a very European way of saying he wasn't really, you know, after the publicity, he was just doing what he needed to do. Where do we stand today? You know, there's that quotation that says, if I have seen further than others, Isaac Newton, it is because I stood on the shoulders of what? Giants. Where do we stand today as a church? Like, have we forgotten where we've come from? Prophetically, historically, the whole question, where do you come from, is an important question for us to ask ourselves today. You know, today in America, you can, well, not just America, you can do that thing, the saliva test. You've seen that saliva test? To find out where you come from, what your heritage is. And it's fascinating. They did this video, some of you may have seen it on Facebook or flying around the internet, where they had a group of people and they said, where do you think you come from? And this person says, I'm English. This one says, I'm from here. This one says, I'm from there. When they actually start doing the test, they realize that the English guy was like 40% German, and this guy was this, and this guy was that. And it's like, wow. I was with someone just last, last week. This week, last week. And he would always tell me, I come from here, this country, this island. 
But after doing the test, he found out that he's actually 40% Indonesian. Like, where did that come from? Where on earth did that come from? My wife's uncle just did that, the test. And she always tells me she's half Japanese and half something else. And it's pretty accurate, because the uncle did the test and found out that he's 97.1% Japanese. And my wife is pretty accurate when she says she's half Japanese. Where we come from is a question we get asked all the time. And it's a question we're not always sure how to answer. If I say you, where'd you come from? Did you come from Loma Linda? Did you come from where your parents grew up? Do you come from where your parents were born? Do you come from where you were born? Growing up in England, I would have that question. My mom's from Iceland, my dad's from Mauritius. Where'd you come from? And I'd say, I'm from England. And I get this especially here in America, because Americans have this concept that English people are all white with blonde hair and blue eyes. And so when you say, where are you from? And I say, I'm from England. Oh. But, but where are you from? Oh, I was, and I know where they're going with the question, but I just can't be bothered to answer it how they want me to answer it. Because I'm like, oh, I was born and raised in England. Oh, but, oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> the question never got answered, but I know what the question was, and they know what the question was. But anyway, it's just kind of one of those unique parts of interaction. Where do we come from spiritually? As Adventists, we should know. Our church didn't form in 1844. It didn't really form technically, even though it was incorporated in 1860. Where do we come from as Seventh-day Adventists? Like, history is not just a study of dates. It's not just a study of characters. It's not just kind of a boring recital of events that have happened in the past. These events and these men and these women, they've paved the way for who we are today. And understanding our legacy helps us to have a greater sense of identity today and a greater rounded understanding as to who we are. Like, our religious journey did not just start when we got baptized or it did not just start when our parents joined the church that we may be a part of today. It's important for us to look back because by looking back, it gives us greater assurance in the present and as we look to the future, it gives us greater confidence for the future. You know the quotation, we have nothing to fear for the past, the future, except we forget how the Lord has led us in the, in the past. Well, how did God lead his people? And who did he lead? And what were the challenges that they faced? It's important for us to kind of get a snapshot into the past to know as we're moving forward. It's kind of like as a Christian, we always got one eye backwards and one eye forwards. One eye backwards and one eye forwards. What's coming up? Oh, let's, let's check. What's coming up? Let's check it in, the, in behind. Some people today just kind of want to ignore what's in the back. Some Christians just want to always look at the back and forget what's going in the front. As Christians, we live kind of between these three elements of the past, the present, and the future. And it's important for us to cast the eye back that as we move forward, our feet can be on solid ground. The Reformation, or this year, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, has come to us today, this year. Some are celebrating the end of the Reformation. Some are celebrating what the Reformation did. 
As Adventists, as Adventists, we look back on it, though, slightly different. We look back on the Reformation as being key. Key events that took place that shaped who we are. But we're not stuck in time. Because we're not Lutherans, and we're not Methodists, and we're not Presbyterians. We're Seventh-day Adventists. So we didn't get frozen in time with Martin Luther, or, or, or with John Knox, or with John Calvin. But we recognize the principle of Proverbs 4, verse 18, that the path of the just is like the shining light that shines evermore unto the perfect day. We recognize that God was using those people, and he was using them to bring back the light of, his, of the knowledge of his word, and each one played a significant role in history. And we don't judge them back then by what we understand today. But we know that God looks at us and will judge us by what knowledge and what truth we have access to today. These men and women, they laid the way for us. And it's important for us to understand where we've come from to know where we're going. Martin Luther wasn't perfect, not by a long shot. And there's modern history now starts to look at these people and judges them, in a sense, by the standard that we have today. Modern history looks at these people and says, well, Martin Luther did this, and Martin Luther did that, and Martin Luther did this, and Martin Luther did that, as if to discredit everything else they did. We don't whitewash history, but at the same time, we can't always hold people by the moral standard we understand today and recognize God used them and they had a fragment of truth that they stood by. And it was that principle that was key. You may not know everything that you need to know or you'll know in 10 years' time, but live by what you know now. And that's the principle in many ways of Laodicea. Laodicea knows so much and lives by so little. Live by what we know it is in many ways the principle that we pull from the Reformation and these guys. Martin Luther lived by, you know, he's known for the just live by faith. He's known for that thing. He's not known for the Sabbath. In fact, he rejected the Sabbath. And we as Adventists can't quite get ahead around that. How someone could have one thing so strong and rejects what we, let God do the judging, amen? Like, that's the one thing he's known for. And other people, different things. We each have our own path, and God leads us different ways. But live by God's word, and live according to conviction as to what God reveals to us, is one of the key things that we learn from these people. Now, Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at some general principles of the Reformation, and tomorrow afternoon, we're going to look at some other stories and other principles that we pull from the Reformation that I believe provide a foundation for us today and can inspire us in the lives that we live today. Rome declared there were two instrumental causes of justification. Baptism at birth, we call today christening, Adventists do dedication, but it's nowhere near the same, but it's, it was at birth. Sacrament of penance. And it was by the sacraments that justification was given. Now, 
The reformers, however, spoke differently. So they said you have to have this baptism and this penance, of which indulgences was part, to be justified. The reformers came along and said, Anna, it's different. We believe in justification by faith what? Alone. And therein lay a huge difference. The idea that faith, rather than the sacraments, would be the instrument that we are linked with Christ and receive the grace of justification was the revolutionary new idea. The idea was babies have to be baptized and then you have to have a constant life of confession, indulgences, confession, indulgences in order to be saved. Martin Luther and the reformers insisted that the righteousness that justifies us was one that was institia extra nos, meaning a righteousness outside of what? Us. What we believe today, amen? It's a righteousness that is given to us by Jesus Christ as opposed to one that we generate ourselves by whatever that we do. To Rome, the righteousness of Christ is not imputed but infused to the believer. And when the believer cooperates with the infused righteousness, the believer then possesses an inherent righteousness which then become the grounds of justification. So Rome had this different view that obviously we hold today. The Council of Trent, 15. 45 to 1563 said, those who through sin have forfeited the grace of justification can again be justified when moved by God, they exert themselves to obtain through the sacrament of penance the recovery by the merit of Christ for the grace lost. For this manner of justification is restoration for those fallen, which the Holy Father has aptly called the second plank. So the penance was the second plank that they stood on. They've lost it, and now they have to do penance to get justification back. This was what Martin Luther was standing against when he said the just live by faith. They say, catechism, justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It confirms to us the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by his power of his mercy. Martin Luther was objecting to this theology that was being taught. And he said, we're justified by what? Faith alone. And he would have some significant events in his life when this would be debated, when he would stand on and debate these things. This is in, the, in Worms, the Diet of Worms, you probably heard that. It's not too far from that spot where that statue is, where he stood on the ground and made his stand, where he defended his theological teachings. And the famous phrase at the end is when he said, here I stand, I can do what? No other. But he was defending theologically his view on justification we remember his view on, you know, conscience and being true to conviction, but he was defending his view. Now, this idea that we are solely saved by grace or solely saved by faith, how does that match up with, like, the view that we have fruits of repentance? You ever thought about that? The Catholic would say that you have to do something penance, to earn your salvation. As a Protestant, we say, no, you don't have to do anything. Forgiveness comes from who? We're saved by grace through what? And not of yourself, it is a gift of? But what about when the Bible talks about the fruits of repentance? It says, have fruits meet for what? Repentance. Does that imply you have to do something to earn your repentance? If you repent of something, but there's no contrition, is it genuine repentance, yes or no? No. 
But the question is, at what point do you receive forgiveness? There's a bag on the stage there. I don't know if there's anything in it of worth anything. But let's just say as I go home today, I steal that bag. Take it with me. I've done something wrong. And when I'm at home, I'm feeling guilty that I took the bag. Because it's not my bag. So before I go to bed tonight, I kneel down and I say, Lord, forgive me. Question, is am I forgiven? Yes or no? <laughs> am I forgiven? When I kneel down by the bed tonight and say, Lord, forgive me for stealing that bag. Does God forgive me tonight before I go to sleep? It's a kind of, it's kind of gauge how Adventist or Catholic we are. Does God forgive me before I go to sleep? But I still got the bag in my room. See, some people say you're only forgiven until you give the bag back. But I'm not forgiven when I ask for forgiveness. Technically, I'm forgiven straight away when I ask for forgiveness. And now if that forgiveness in me, or that spirit of whatever you call it, repentance, is genuine, it will lead me then to what? Come back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on time for church. Someone say amen. And bring the bag and give it back to whoever the bag is. However, if I don't bring the bag back, then I kind of go back into a state of what? It's kind of weird. Not weird, but it's, at which point are you forgiven? Now, the Catholic view is you're only forgiven until you've done da 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 At the end, you're not forgiven. We believe, though, no. You're actually forgiven when you ask God to forgive you. The fruit meet for repentance is not a prerequisite, it's not a precondition, but it is a, it's a fruit or a result. There's a different way of looking at it. True repentance brings forgiveness before restitution is made. However, while restitution satisfies the command of God to pay our human debts, it is not the ground of what? Justification. The Council of Trent held that works before justifying grace cannot merit grace, but after justifying grace, we merit final grace. The Protestant Reformation challenges hold legalistic scheme by contending that no Christian can merit God's favor. They would say, we need the works to merit God's favor. They said, no, no, it's actually the other way around. We cannot merit God's favor by our works. For Rome, grace makes human merit possible. For the reformers, grace makes human merit what? Impossible. A very different way of looking at what was a key belief at the time. We believe you're saved by grace, what? Through faith, and that it's not of yourself. It is a what? It is a gift of God. Martin Luther himself said, these arguments of the scholastics about the merit of congruence and worthiness are nothing but vain figments and dreamy speculations of idle folks about worthless stuff. Yet they form the foundation of the papacy and on them it rests to this very day. For this is what every monk imagines. By observing the sacred rules of my order, I can earn the grace of congruence, but by the works I do after I have received this grace, I can accumulate a merit so great that it will not only be enough to bring me eternal life, but I can sell it to other people as well. 
Like, that's the view. Like, we've got to work so hard to earn my own, and then I can kind of start giving it to other people too. He says, no. The just shall live by what? Faith. That one text would peel back all these layers of darkness. And as Adventists, it would be well for us to remember that the just live by faith. Luther went on to say, there is no such thing as merit, but all who are justified are justified for nothing, gratis, and that it is credited to no one but the grace of God. For Christ alone, it is proper to help and save others with his merits and works. The works of others are a benefit to no one but to themselves either, for the statement stands, the just live by faith. For faith grounds us on the works of Christ without our own works and transfers us from the exile of our sins into the kingdom of his righteousness. This is faith. This is the gospel. This is Christ. The just shall live by faith. The Roman Catholic view was that faith plus works equals justification. The Reformation view would come along and say, no, faith leads to justification, works follow. One would say it's a precondition, one would say works was a fruit. Our works should be the fruit of the relationship and Christ abiding in us. Our works are not the precondition of Christ saving us. Today, we still wrestle with this whole concept. We still wrestle back and forth as to what it means. For Rome, justification rests on sanctification. For the reformers, sanctification flows out of, by necessary connection, their justification. I pray that we would have a clearer understanding of the righteousness of God and a clearer understanding of what it means to live by faith. This concept caused theological ruptures in the medieval church. And today, some would like to say that this was all a misunderstanding. You know, Rome today still says that the view we had in the Council of Trent is the same view we have today. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. God's word hasn't changed either, though, amen? And God's word when it was written thousands of years ago, is still the divine truth that stands for us today and still lays the groundwork for how we should live our lives. I like this quote, though, of Martin Luther because it kind of brings it back to home. Because it's easy to study the Reformation and get caught up in history. It's easy to study the Reformation and get caught up in theology or get caught up in dates but I love this text by Martin Luther because he kind of brings it back down to the personal aspect of himself and by, retro, by, by, by extension, ourself as well. He said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of all the popes and cardinals, for I have within me the great pope, self. It's easy for us as Christians or Protestants or Adventists or whatever term you want to live by to point and say Catholics, Pope, Reformation, da 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 And forget how it really applies to us today. You can study, yeah, you know, grace and faith and soul of this and soul of that. But at the end of the day, Luther's fear should be our fear as well. We should be more afraid of ourselves than of anyone else and of anything else. 
For in us lies the greatest of popes, and that is the Pope itself. And only when we surrender and die to it will all of whatever we may have spoken about make any sense to us today. I pray that that may be our experience in our lives as we walk with Christ. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads as we close. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray as we've looked back in the past, as we've seen prophetically or historically how you have led just a snapshot of your people. Lord, we thank you for that in times of great darkness, the light never fully went out. And today, Lord, as we're living in a world of great darkness again, I pray, Lord, that the light in our lives may not go out, that your word may abide in our hearts, and that we may be an example and a witness for you. Bless us, Lord, we pray, and may these closing words be our experience, that we may not allow self to reign on our hearts, but that we may be surrendered to you completely and totally. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.